Hi, my name is Alex Rushmer. I'm the co-chef, co-owner at a restaurant called Vandalisle in Cambridge, and I'm talking to you today about plant-based cooking. New series, new name, new artwork, but I had to keep that cheesy music. Yes, a podcast with me, Paul Newbegin, has returned, but we have rebranded. We are now the Chef Social Podcast, and we are sponsored in partnership with Hospitality Rewards. Hospitality Rewards is the first and only employee benefit program for people that work in hospitality. The website and app gives members access to a range of features and benefits. And actually, we talk about it on each episode, but I think some of the benefits, I think maybe the benefit that um, particularly Kenny Atkinson, who uses it, um, he loved the most was the the 24-7 support for mental health, mental and physical health, and financial health as well. Obviously, especially in these times, how useful is that? But also, you know, you can save on things like gym membership, discounted shopping vouchers, there's a cashback card, cinema tickets for those rare days off, and trade discounts from the likes of Oliver Harvey, Shoes for Cruise, and KitchenAids, and of course, the perks, and we talk about the perks in the episodes, but there are exclusive perks and industry discounts venues across the uk and the reason why we wanted to partner is really to start to give back and give back as a thank you to all the guests so we will be inviting everyone that's a guest to um, come on and join the app as well for free as a little thank you but uh, they won't know that ahead of the ahead of the call so it'd be a nice little surprise for them hopefully enjoy today's episode thank you so much for joining me on on your episode um of the chef social um podcast is you know you since i got recommissioned to do this series you were kind of one of the first names that i I wanted and and particularly to talk about your topic which you've just so kindly uh introduced but your your journey to starting on plant-based cooking was quite different because obviously you you know after coming out of master chef you did something quite different to to, to what you're doing now but let's start at MasterChef so what way 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 back when what in your right mind encouraged you to apply uh, the honest answer is I think it was about half a bottle of red wine on a very miserable Sunday evening and I was working I was working in a job that I didn't particularly enjoy um, and it was one of those winter evenings on a Sunday is you know the feeling you get as a kid when it's Sunday night and you've not done your homework yet yeah it was it was like that and I was I was a couple of glasses of wine in and had dinner uh, and loads of my friends had said to me oh maybe you should just maybe you should just apply you like cooking maybe you should just apply and mm. see what happens and I really didn't think anything of it so I, I was slightly tipsy I fired off this application and then heard nothing for about six weeks um and then the next thing I know, I get this email and then a phone call and then a telephone interview and then a screen test. Um, and then you sort of get bundled into the studio and then that's it. <laughs> the roller coaster sets off from, from the station um, and you have to sort of strap in and hold on for dear life. Um, and then it sort of spits you out the other side several months later. Um and and life had changed. Life had yeah. totally changed. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was a phenomenal experience. Um, I loved it. I'd recommend it to anybody who is who's ever thought about it um, to just just fire off an application and see what happens. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it super interests me because I've been lucky enough to interview lots of mar- people that have gone through MasterChef, MasterChef pros, um, you know, uh, and and the uh, MasterChef amateurs. Um, what before you apply then? Because you'd already said like some of your friends had said to you about going on. <laughs> what are you doing then? Are you hosting supper parties to your friends or are you just, you know, what, what is your level at at that point? So I was, I I suppose just a, just a very nerdy, uh, home cook. Um, I, I'd worked in a cookware shop, um, before that and cooked every night. First, first year out of university, I moved to London. I was living with some friends. So I was doing a lot of cooking and a lot of of surrounded by food and foodie people. Uh, and then, uh, I moved back home with my folks after that year in London, um, and was still sort of super interested in, in food and writing about food and sort of working on the periphery. And I'd never set foot in a kitchen, but there was always, there'd always been this mystique as far as I was concerned about, about chef life and, and the life of a cook and what it was like to run a restaurant. Um, and I said to my dad years before that, uh, yeah, that conversation that you have to have when you're sort of choosing your A-levels or choosing what you're going to do when you head off to university. So what do you want to do? I said, I think I want to open a restaurant. And, um, my dad's, my dad's an accountant. He's now retired, but his accountant his whole life. And he said, you know, you know, half of all restaurants go bust in the first 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> And that was okay, enough to put you yeah. off to begin with. Was that was, it? Well, that was enough to put me off. And so I, you know, I did my A levels and I went to university and got a degree. Um, but there was nothing that I'd done that that managed to fulfil me in the same way that mm. food did. Um, so that was it. That was that was that was my sort of that was my punt. It's not a it's not a career move that I'd recommend to to anybody. And it was a bit of a it was a bit of a punt and a bit of a gamble. But you know, if I if I'd not ended up in the MasterChef kitchen, then I, I'm sure I would have found another route into it. And I was writing about food at the time, and I'd, I'd right, sort of set right, up right. Um, set up my blog, uh, going way back. You know, I think it was back in the days of blogs. Was, back in the days of blogs, this was 2000 before YouTube and then before podcasts. <laughs> well, this was it, and there was no Instagram, there was no Twitter. This was uh, 2006, I think, when I first started blogging. And you were blogging um, about what restaurants, food, recipes? No, no, no. I couldn't, I couldn't no? afford. I couldn't afford to eat in restaurants. It was it was about recipes. It was right, about right, um, right. seasonal food and things that you know, just sort of general ideas that are swimming around in my head. The occasional recipe, um, but um, nothing, nothing really to do with restaurants because eating out was a was a was a rare luxury for me. Mm. And and like I say, you know. No, as we said before um we had a little chat a little while ago and i obviously a season was quite some time ago now um when was it that just remind me when when you when you were on do you, do you remember the year i'm sure so yeah we filmed in 2009 okay so the end 2009, of 2009 right. and it aired in 2010 yeah and i can still remember even to this day the three of you you were all so close by the time of the finals and like i said I loved because when they used to kind of wheel you back out for a want of a better phrase and you come in and, and judge in the judge in the chamber, you always used to come as a package, the three of you, until quite recently. And yeah. I always loved that because it's like, ah, there's those guys again. Like they loved each other in their series. So I think there was I think something happened in in that series. It was a there was an alignment of the planets for sure. Um because when I the, when I applied the series was going out on BBC2 and it had sort of jumped from this 
um, tea time slot on BBC Two to a prime time slot on BBC Two. And then uh, I think about halfway through filming our series, we found out that it was going to be prime time BBC One. Um, so, so MasterChef Series Six, which is the one I was on with Tim and Drew, it was the first series that they aired that was BBC One. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons it sticks in people's minds. But certainly the the friendship that developed between the three of us was was absolutely it was magical and it remains magical as well. You know, we've, we, we talk at least once a week um, and we've all gone into food in some way, shape or form. Drew's doing amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. British charcuterie work. Tim is one of the most talented pastry chefs I've ever, I've ever met. They both mm-hmm. came to my wedding. We, we, we celebrated together. We, we commiserated together when times are good. We, we get together when times are rough, we get together. And yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, we've known each other for, for well over 10 years now. And it's, it's such a, it, that, that for me is the, is, was the real gem that came out of the, of the series. And even if nothing had happened with regards to what I was doing in, in kitchens, um, just having that would have been enough to make the experience worthwhile. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Cause like you say, you just said that you almost kind of covered the whole spectrum of interest in food, right? You got guy doing amazing things with meat and guy doing amazing things with plant-based <laughs> cooking and then you got the pastry side so you were a, you were a, you're a perfect complement to each other almost <laughs> yeah it seems to have taken a while to get to get here for us to find our feet but complement um, each yeah, other so well did yeah. you ever do one of those things where you all kind of collaborate and like cook your you know cook meals from your master chef day did you do things like that all together i bet you <laughs> yeah, must have had some fun in some kitchens together we did so immediately. Immediately after we, immediately after the series went out in 2010, uh, there was a MasterChef pop up at a restaurant in Soho, which ran, I think, for two weeks. Um, and we weren't cooking together every night, but we we were certainly cooking together the majority of nights uh, there, which was which was incredible. You know, thrust into the into the public eye again, but in a very much sort of live fire exercise. <laughs> Um, in terms of the restaurant world, uh, and then the, my last, the last service I ever did at the Hole in the Wall, which was um, which was the restaurant that I opened on the back of MasterChef in 2011. I was there for six years, um, but the last, uh, not quite the last, sorry, the penultimate week there, um, the three of us put together a menu and 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 all cooked together in the kitchen at the restaurant, the hole in the wall and did this collaborative dinner, which was just a, a phenomenal experience. It was great. Yeah. I was going to ask, I was going to ask if they came there. So, you, so you've answered my question. We'll get onto the hole in the wall. Cause obviously that's where we met. Um, we're nearly there. Um, what I'm interested in. So you get to, you get to the, you get to the end and you've done really well. And like you say, it feels like there's this kind of momentum building behind you. What was your thoughts then, you know, I feel like judging on what you said, you knew that you wanted to be a chef, but obviously do you think, right, how do I get the foundations that I need? What was your kind of approach to getting the skills that you felt you were going to need going forward? Uh, it was a, it was a bit of bluster actually. Um, I knew I had enough of a platform to do it. Um, it took about a year to find the right place, um, to do it and the hole in the wall was a was a pub that i was familiar with i live not far away from there i knew it had a good reputation um and you know i'd spent i spent hours and hours and hours trawling through commercial estate agents trying to find the right 
property, trying to find the right location, trying to find somewhere that didn't have a huge financial cost of entry. This is, you know, this is like peak financial crisis time. This was um, people were still still suffering. Um, so it's so, so nice that everything's totally different now, isn't it? Isn't it? It's like no time, <laughs> no time has passed. <laughs> Uh, so this this ticked all the boxes. It was it was relatively cheap to get to get it up and running. It was almost a turnkey operation. Um, a landlord who was very understanding and had a similar background to myself, and my business partner at the time, um, and it was close by. It was close. It was close to where I lived. Um, so it ticked all those boxes. And I think I just needed enough enough confidence, <laughs> but, but also being sensible about knowing what what the limitations were, and also. <clears throat> realizing how important it was to be able to learn on the job. And I had to, I'd say that for my first three years at the hole in the wall were probably like a, a seven or eight year, uh, career that, uh, somebody going into kitchens at 16 might have, uh, and working their way up to, to having a level of knowledge well, that, yeah, that they'd this, have after six, seven this years. This is what I was and thinking. Was a, so that- <clears throat> Yeah, thinking this exactly like you must, you know, you must have to have learned more, you know, how, you know, you haven't been, you haven't come from that industry, you haven't been a chef full time. You must have literally kind of had to learn everything, right? There was, there was a phenomenal amount. I mean, I'd done a lot of reading around the subject, but there's no, there's no amount of reading that can prepare you for the, the real day-to-day of, of running a kitchen and running a restaurant. So I surrounded myself with, with a number of people who, um, who I thought could help me through it. Experienced general, ma- general manager, experienced pastry chef, uh, and and then we just sort of went for it. And it was it was perhaps a little bit overconfident, but um, we were learning techniques, and we were I was learning how to run a business, uh, how to manage supply side of things, how to manage orders, how how, how to manage payroll invoicing VAT. Um, there was so much, there is so much to running a restaurant and I had to learn it in a matter of months, uh, rather than, rather than years. But I've always been a, I've always been a learner and I've always liked the, the, the process of learning and absorbing, uh, and the, and the way I've always done it is, is the way I've always done it best is by actually just getting stuck in and getting involved, um, and immersing myself in it. Um, and I think that's what happened. Um, and it wasn't always, it wasn't always easy. Um, and an awful lot of it was, there was some, there was some sleepless nights. Um, and it was by and large, it was an enjoyable experience, but there were certainly some stressful moments through it. And, um, six years was definitely enough of those (laughs) 80, 90 hour weeks, um, and doing 10 services a week and having to try and, make sure you've got enough money left at the end of the month for, for payroll and suppliers and, and rent, because it wasn't, it wasn't a profitable business at all by any stretch of the imagination. And it was, it was incredibly hard work for very little financial reward. Um, we were well reviewed. We picked up mm. some, some pretty good awards that about two weeks after I decided I wasn't going to renew the lease. Uh, we were named one of the Sunday Times top 100 restaurants yeah. in the UK. Which yeah, well, the, was, it was I, incredible. I, yeah, I remember, and that's what I was going to say because you know, it, 
with the greatest respect, there are not many restaurants. I was, I'm still living in West Yorkshire, and there are not many restaurants I would travel from West Yorkshire to Cambridge, especially mm. to go to. You know, and that was because the reputation was so strong. Um, and I think it, yeah, it came, it came as quite a, a, a shock to quite a lot of people. It felt like, say, especially after the the awards that you were getting and the strong reputation, was there was there like a beginning of the end for you in your mind, or was it? You know, because again, what I'm interested in is when your mind starts to turn to mm. what you're doing now. That's where that's kind of what I'm really interested to find out when that happened for you. So it became it became clear in a sort of slow realization that um, that it wasn't the business that I'd built there wasn't sustainable in terms of it being financially successful or physically or emotionally sustainable for me. Um, I think the closest I ever got, I think I've written about this in the past, but the closest I ever got to a sort of full-on breakdown was uh, after a very, very hectic Saturday lunch, knowing that we were fully booked on the Saturday night, knowing that we hadn't started any prep for a 100-cover Sunday lunch the following day. Um, and I was, in the, I, was in, I was in the car park of the Cash and Carry. It is the most unglamorous place you could possibly imagine and there's just something there you wouldn't have been the so, first person to have a breakdown in no, a cash and carry no no you're not the first person to say that either um but it was it, it was just a it was just a sort of it was a very it was a very dark moment but it was also a moment of realization and that was probably that was probably in the summer of 2016 um and I knew I had about a year left on the lease and I knew I had to had about six months left to make a decision about what I was going to do with regards to the lease. And I think from that moment on, there was just a sort of level of freedom knowing that it wasn't something that I was going to do forever. Um, I'm, I'm hugely, uh, I'm hugely grateful for the experience that I had um, because I learned some incredibly valuable lessons that I, that I've brought forward. Um, but I think it also massively highlighted some of the fundamental flaws that are prevalent within the industry as a whole. Um, and uh, knowing that knowing that I was working so hard, um, but not really, get, there was some personal mm-hmm. satisfaction. And but awards are just, for me, awards are just ego. Um, mm. and, 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 you know, it's nice for a minute, but then the second you open up the payroll the next day or the second that you yeah, open yeah, up the, yeah, yeah. the, the P&L from the previous month, you think, oh, well, that's great, but we made a hundred quid last week and, and yeah, I yeah. worked a hundred hours. So, you know, what's, what's, what's it all worth? Um, I'd got married as well a couple of years prior to that. I got married in 2015. Um, and knowing that I wanted to spend more time at home, more time with my wife, more time with my little whippet called Toby, um, both of whom I love dearly. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I just wasn't, have, I just didn't have the time yeah, to do the things sure. that, that, that I was, that I wanted to do. And it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling me in the way that I needed my work to do. Mm. Um, so it wasn't, um, it was actually a very easy decision to make by the end of it. Yeah, and do you know what you alluded to that post? I'm sure I, I'm sure I remember. Like you say, you putting quite, you know, being quite honest and, and quite open about how you're finding it. So, you know, then when you were coming to shape what you're doing now, I suppose, like you say, as much as there was a difference in food um, 
thinking i i also get the the sense that like you say there was a sense in right my mental state needs to be right it needs to support me whoever you know we employ at, as well so there was kind of two new schools of thought going on for you at that point i i kind of get the impression yeah that's 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 precisely it um and in fact the the sustainability came first and the the nature of the food and the menu actually almost happened accidentally. Um, so I closed after I closed the hole in the wall. I spent um, I spent two months working in Switzerland. Um, I was working as a consultant chef for a new opening in the Swiss Alps, which was great fun. Um, it got me out of it got me out of the country. It got me out of my mindset. Somebody else paying me a salary, which was really lovely. <laughs> um, and I sort of, it wasn't that I'd fallen out of love of, with, with, with cooking, but it was just that I'd fallen out of love with the, the process of, of running a restaurant and being able to cook, um, and have somebody else worry about all the other stuff was, was, was lovely. Um, uh, after that, I spent, um, a bit of time at home and then, um, had a few weeks working in Ethiopia um, doing a similar wow. sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I worked in the Simeon mountains, uh, an wow. eco lodge in Ethiopia, which was a phenomenal experience. Absolutely yeah. That's incredible. a bit different to Cambridge. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was great. I think I, you know, Swiss Alps and then the Simeon mountains, yeah, I think yeah. Cambridge is just too flat. I needed some hills. <laughs> yeah, I going to say, I need some height. I need some altitude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Set up a little burger um, van at the top of Kathmandu for a while. Yeah. And K2 and yeah. Yeah. First hot dog served on top of yeah, Everest, it's, Alex. It's, it's, um, yeah, I couldn't boil pasta. I couldn't boil pasta. I couldn't cook pasta properly because you, the water boils <laughs> at about ninety degrees. <laughs> I mean, the Simians are—they're they're, they're incredibly high. They're—they're they're, they're really, really high. And you know, it took a while to adjust to the altitude. But um, yeah, it was, I it bet. Was truly, truly incredible experience. And one of the things that I love about food and having cooking as a skill is that you can take it anywhere. You can take it mm. absolutely, it's like the most transferable skill you can possibly imagine. It's cross-cultural, it's cross-linguistic. Um, it's, you can just, you can literally walk up to, to theoretically, barring, um, you know, the legality of it, you could walk up to any kitchen in the world and, and, and with your knives and say, you know, like, I'm here to, you know, can you let me spend a couple of days with you? And you could, you know, most I think most chefs would be glad for the glad for the help, yeah. um, which is which I is why I love having it as a having it as a skill set. Um, so yeah, the 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 fundamentals behind uh, behind Vandalil. Um, so I got back in touch with my old sous chef from the Hole in the Wall days, um, and we'd done a couple of pop ups together. We did pop up at um places in and around cambridge um some of it by the by the seat of our pants a little bit we were <laughs> there was one we were working in a kitchen that was probably no bigger than it was sort of one meter by two meters and we had a fryer and we had a sous vide and we had a water bath going on and we had this little oven and it was just absolute chaos but it was great great fun we we did all these little projects we did some private dining stuff and we got our heads together and we were we, we both decided that we wanted to we, we wanted to cook we wanted to cook it on our own terms and basically spent about six weeks throwing ideas and numbers into a spreadsheet and doing forecast after forecast after forecast and trying to work out if there was a, a balance point between being able to own a restaurant and being able to cook in a restaurant 
and it not completely dominating your life and you're not having to burn people out or spend 80 hours a week in the kitchen or stressing about getting everybody paid every month. Um, so we talked a lot, we talked a lot about sustainability and I know that's a real buzzword at the moment and people think it means one thing and they think it means, you know, making sure your supply chains are, are uh, as they should be and making sure you're not using any cling film in the kitchen or you know single use plastics and things like that um and and part of it is that but also it's about personal sustainability because if you if you can't if you're not looking after yourself there's no way you can look after your customers and there's no way that you can start thinking about how to reduce your use of single use plastics or making mm -hmm. sure that there's a few links in the supply chain as as you possibly can um so we sort of decided we reached this point where we where we we were pretty sure that we could open somewhere that was um financially sustainable um but also didn't suck the life force out of us at the same time <laughs> um and and we realized that we could probably do it on four services a week um providing that we so what what i've what what I found difficult at the hole in the wall was the sheer number of, of variables that you're dealing with as a chef and as a business owner. And for a start, you don't know how many people are going to come through the door, particularly on a Wednesday lunchtime in the middle of the Cambridgeshire countryside. Sure, sure. Once they do come through the door, you don't know what they're going to eat. And I was just, I was baffled. So one of the things that always surprised me and one thing that I always struggled with um, at the hole in the wall was the, the, the number of variables. And that's where, uh, that's where the problems were. That's mm. where the problems lay. Sure. Um, and not knowing how many people were going to come through the door on a Thursday lunchtime, for example, or not knowing mm. what they were going to order. Um, so I mean, it baffled me. Like this is a, an example that I've used before, but I had to place, uh, we did 10 services a week. Um, five of those came uh, at the weekend. So it's Friday lunch, Friday night, Saturday lunch, Saturday night and Sunday lunch. So the five, and we probably do 75 to 80% of our covers over those wow. five services. Yeah. But I had to place my fish order for those five services on a Thursday night for delivery on Friday. So I had to guess on a thursday night how much fish i was going to sell over the course of 80 percent of the of, of the number of covers we were going to do over the course of a week um and it was just it, it was it was just one of those things that i thought was ludicrous one of those things yeah, that I thought yeah. was crazy and you know if you wrote to somebody on you wrote to one of your part-time staff on and on on a, a service where you've only got you know, six booked and then you don't end up getting any walk-ins. I don't agree with, you know, if you've offered somebody the work, I don't agree with, with, with sending them home after an hour because, you know, you don't know if what plans they've made or what plans they haven't made or what their transport situation is and all these, all these things. So all these variables that are swimming around in the ether that you, that, 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 that are the fat that, I thought could be trimmed away from a restaurant operation. Um, so Lawrence, who's my business partner, and I, we put our heads together 
we began with this premise it's like we want a restaurant we want to be able to cook we want to be able to serve people the food that we want to make how do we do that in a way that's not going to physically or emotionally destroy us <laughs> but also is going to be financially sustainable um and we began by deciding which of these variables we could remove so can we remove the variable of not knowing how many people are going to be coming into the restaurant on any given service well yes we can because we can get them to pay up front so the booking system we use yep. is called talk yep. which is something that i've been yep. familiar with for, for a long long time um, yeah an old old guest on the old podcast was nick kakonis from talk so yeah big fans nick, of talk here I would I would crawl over broken glass for Nick. Um, he's a he's an incredible man, and, and and genuinely one of the reasons that we made it through the pandemic um, was was the work that uh, that Nick did with with Tog. Um, it's an incredible system, and just having that level of controllability as a restaurant owner is 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 it's a complete game changer. I know people throw the term game changer around quite a lot, but just wrestling back that level of control was absolutely fundamental to to what we're doing at the restaurant so we removed that variable so and um, funny enough we've we've had you know we've been open three and a half years now i think we've had two people not show up and wow they 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 that's got to be a record i mean it's, it's it's just phenomenal yeah it turns out when people have paid for something up front they're much more likely to, <laughs> to turn up and we're not we're not like completely draconian about it people you know we understand we realize that that sometimes things happen and you know that might be illness it might be you know all sorts of different reasons so, um, so we do reschedule people you know we're not totally dogmatic about it um we realize that we're in the business of hospitality and we have to make people feel welcome so that was the first one the second one was how do we uh how do we avoid food waste well the easiest way to avoid food waste is to give everybody the same menu um, and in that, there is a level of consistency as well. So we completely discounted the idea of an a la carte menu, focused entirely on a, on a fixed tasting menu um, with variables allowed for dietary restrictions and allergies. Um, and and we, wrote these first, we wrote these first menus in the business plan, um, and they did have a small amount of, of meat and fish on them. We were, we were talking to um, quite a lot, of, uh, a lot of local shoots, for example, talking about um, how to get game when it's in season. Uh, we were discussing how to source the best local venison. There's quite a lot of, there's a lot of game in Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire, so it's not, it's not difficult to, yeah, yeah, to come yeah, by. Yeah. Um, some of the most incredible, I was really excited about using suppliers like Flying Fish again, who I'd used uh, in the past, and they're incredible produce. Um, so we were, we did have a small amount of meat and fish on our sample menus. Um, and then when time came to open, we were, we were running way behind schedule. We had to bump our soft launch by about two weeks. So we actually only got, I think we ended up only having two soft launches um, before we actually opened for the, for the public. And I think we'd, we'd, we'd planned in at least eight when we only had two services soft launch. Um, and it wasn't even it was it was Lawrence actually that that suggested that at least for the soft launch whilst we're getting used to the kitchen while we're we're getting used to the menu format whilst we're getting used to the structure and getting used to cooking together again and embedding people in and training the front of house um 
maybe it would be better to do a menu where we didn't have to make any changes. Um, and we knew we had some vegetarians, some pescatarians booked in. Um, and at the same time, um, we just started working with an incredible local farmer called Calixta Calanda, who has Flourish Produce, um, which is an amazing, inspirational, regenerative farm, um, only about 10 miles from the restaurant. Um, so we had all this incredible produce. We had this idea of running a sustainable menu. We didn't want any food waste and we wanted to make our lives a little bit easier in the kitchen. Um, so we ran this, we ran this totally vegetarian menu and it was one of those light bulb moments. <laughs> I was going to um, say, I can sense a eureka moment happening. It re- yeah, it really was. It really was. Um, but even then we didn't, we didn't commit to it. I mean, we still don't call ourselves a, a vegetarian restaurant. We say, mm. you know, we say plant focused, we say sustainable, we say, um, uh, all these sort of euphemistically, <laughs> euphemistic yeah, descriptions. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, well, we've been very so careful in your topic. We haven't said you're doing you're talking about vegetarian. You're talking about plant-based yeah, cookery. Exactly. We're talking about cooking cooking plants. Um, so we opened we opened in the spring. Um, phenomenal response uh, to to the opening menu, um, and then all of a sudden we have this fantastic produce that's coming in from uh, from this from uh, flourish. And there's not enough space on the menu to to get all this on. And that's before we even suggest putting some fish or meat on the menu. Um, so we get to the end of the summer. By the end of the summer, we've been open for, for six months. And, and we sort of, I think we quietly set ourselves this little challenge. Can we go a full year without <laughs> without cooking any meat or fish? Yeah, I reckon, I reckon we can do it. See if anybody notices. <laughs> see, if anybody, see if anybody notices. And we, genu- we genuinely had, uh, you know, I, try and, I, I still try and get to every table um, during the course of an evening particularly at the end of service, just to check in and say hello and make sure everything was all right. And we, particularly in that first year, we had people who said to me, do you know, I didn't even notice until I've just read hadn't even thought about it, yeah. Hadn't even thought about it. Didn't even cross my mind. And that's when I knew that we'd, that, that we'd hit on something special. Um, uh, and I guess it was one of those things that was partly it was partly practical it was partly um and you can bring all these other these other elements in there's an ethical concern there's an environmental concern Mm. there's a there's all there's all these um but these these were i'd like to say that they were at the forefront of our thinking but actually they were they've become very important to what we do um but they were sort of secondary to to actually practical reasons Initially. Well, you know, you've said the word sustainable a lot. We've actually got a whole episode, Gareth Bartram from Winteringham Fields, um, mm-hmm. as talking about their efforts to become more sustainable. And so I'm yeah. actually uh, already, as we're recording this, I'm thinking that you two will put your two podcasts together, you know, put you next to each other, because they kind of go as a nice companion pieces, I think. Um, and I think you've already started to touch on it, but as we kind of move into your, your topic, your specialist subject, if you like, what, why, why do you think, A, why do you think it is so important, right, to, to do this? I think you've already s- spoken about them, but if you can recap for me. But also it's becoming so much more popular in the um, fine dining world is to do mm. this right and why why do you think that is do you think more people are kind of cottoning on to the reasons why it's important and the benefits you get and what have you 
Yeah, I think as people are more and more clued in um, as to the environment, environmental impact of particularly of, you know, I'm not saying that it's impossible to run a sustainable restaurant uh, that 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 has meat on the menu because there are sustainable farming practices that allow you to to graze cattle and to um and to have shellfish on the menu shellfish particularly um uh there's some uh there's there's potentially an ethical argument for for adding shellfish to a to a menu even if you if you even if you want to build yourself as a as a vegetarian ethical vegetarian restaurant but that's that's the discussion for another day um Awareness is something. Awareness amongst the dining public is certainly something that that, that I think is is leading the charge. Um, it's difficult to know how much of this is chef driven and how much of it is driven by the media and how much of it is driven by public awareness and and a public desire to eat more mindfully. Should we say because it's not always about environmental concerns or ethical concerns. Um, it can often be. A combination of various different factors that people are choosing to to make these decisions. Um, personally, for me, I've 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 had to completely rethink so much about what a tasting menu mm. is, should be, can be. Yeah. Um, you're anticipating my next question. I want I want to know I want to know how you retrained your mind, you reframed your thinking, as we've alluded to, from you know, quite a traditional in ways pub setting. Mm. You were doing you know, weren't necessarily doing pub food as you would call it, but certainly, you know, more towards that, to this very creative, the plant like how did you yeah, how did you retrain? How did you reframe your mind? <laughs> So being able to have, I think pre- previously when I've been when I've when I when I was cooking at the hole in the wall, it was very much about having a hero ingredient and then having some support acts around it. So we used to we used to tell these like really fantastic coat de buff steaks with two triple cooked chips, a, a, a decent sauce to go with it, maybe a little steamed pudding on the side. Um, we, we, we always used to have one vegetarian starter and one vegetarian main course. Um, and they were always, I hate to say it now, but they were predominantly an afterthought. I mean, we did, we did do a mushroom risotto. Like, I don't think you'll find a vegetarian in the country that hasn't eaten a mushroom risotto in a pub or a restaurant over yeah, the last yeah. 15 years. Um, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was delicious. Um, and we used really good cheese and we used really good wild mushrooms, but it was still a mushroom risotto. Yeah, no, you're right. It's um, super tasty, but it, like you say, it's, it's, everyone knows it. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fallback option and there's not much, not a great deal of imagination that goes into it. So, so dish design was always, okay, we've, I'd speak to my suppliers and all right, we've got some really good hake this week. What can we do with hake? Or we've got some really good pork belly this week. What should we, what should we put to, to help showcase this pork belly? That is virtually impossible with plant focused cooking because as, as, as delicious as a carrot is, it's, I hate to say it's just a carrot, but it's just a carrot. And it's very hard to build a dish around a single hero ingredient um, when you're cooking with plants. I suppose 
you can you can do it with a narrative you can say this carrot was grown in this perfect soil by <laughs> graham who is only six miles away and you know this is so much it was plucked out of the ground yesterday and i think graham, this is the knows. Sort of, graham can grow a carrot graham knows his carrots i think this is the sort of and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with that but this is very much the sort of dan barber narrative i think um and that was something that we we never really felt. I mean, as, as as fantastic as our suppliers are, and sometimes there were occasions when we would try and showcase individual items, but it just it didn't sit right with us when we were designing menus, um, and it just it just doesn't fulfil the same thing that a piece of turbot does or a piece of um, a, a, a pigeon breast or a perfectly good cooked duck. It just doesn't do the same thing. So that led us back to, you know, ripping everything up and completely starting again and realizing that what we needed to do was all about process. And um, there was this sort of, I, I suppose, a, a a, a dawning realization over the last couple of years that when you're when you're cooking with plants so much like it's mostly water right <laughs> <laughs> so, i know to a certain extent that's true with with meat and fish as well but with a plant what you're dealing with is something that is between 80 and 95 percent water and water, as, as, as important as it is, it's not very tasty. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Not um, known for its flavor profile. It's not, not known for its flavor profile, despite what some water soms at, I don't know, whichever Michelin three-star restaurant has a water sommelier these days. Mm -hmm. Alan Ducasse had one when he Yeah, I was going to say, was, I'm sure you'll find them, won't you? I think so. Um but I don't. I don't want to go out to. I don't want to go out and have you know seven, eight courses of something that is mostly water. So, yeah, yeah. Our 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 premise and our principle and our sort of mo when we're designing dishes is how to extract as much flavour as possible out of this mm -hmm. ingredient. And nine times out of ten, that is removed by removing as much water as possible. Right. Um. And nine times out of 10, that involves cooking something for fucking ages, um, to be, to be frank about it, um, which is where this idea of process comes in. So, right, right. um, a lot of what we do is, uh, is making vast quantities of plant-based produce turn into very, very tiny quantities of something delicious. Right. Okay. Uh, and that can be through a process of, of cooking, through dehydration, um, through reduction, um, through slow cooking, through all sorts of braising, all sorts of different processes. But the vast majority of what we do involves taking loads and loads of stuff and turning it into something that's really small. <laughs> because that's where, that's where the flavor is. That's where yeah. the essence is. That's where... Um, that's where the unexpected is. Uh, so we want 
we want people to come to the, to the restaurant and be super surprised either by intensity of flavor or flavor profile or the direction that the menu is taken or um, texture is another one that we play with a lot. We, we, we try mm. and make sure that dishes have sort of unexpected textures. Um, and I suppose it's, I don't know what the equivalent would be. I mean, charcuterie is a good example. Charcuterie is a really good example because you're, 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 you're taking something that's quite large and then you're reducing it and through a process of evaporation largely and, and fermentation, you're creating something that's much more intensely flavoured. Um, and that's effectively what we do at Vandal Isle. Right, okay. And what about, so what about... Um you know winter months we're recording in october what happens there do you have a do you have a um you know you've always spoke about fermentation but do you have like a storage process do you think ahead you know because obviously not loads famously growing over winter what's what's your strategy there well i think an awful lot of uh, actually what we've what we found is that if we shift the focus to brassicas and roots um then the the growing season actually extends right up until January, February time. And we, we actually see uh, our difficulty comes in sort of late February or February, March, April, and May. That's, oh, when, right, things okay. are, that's when things are really tricky. Um, what's, known as, what's known colloquial as the hunger, the hunger gap. Um, so actually winter is, winter is quite a good time for us. I, I, I love cooking with winter produce and all those delicious, the flavors are more robust. Right, so we're dealing with yeah, things. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're dealing with things that are grown in the ground. We're dealing with things that are grown. Hearty. Yeah, they're hearty, and this is a. This, and Cambridgeshire and East Anglia is a great, great um, part of the country for for those those sorts of those hearty produce. Um, there's a few. There's a few things. I mean, dried pulses are a good example. We use a lot of dried pulses. Um, and there's an amazing company based in Suffolk, uh, and they harvest a lot from Suffolk, Norfolk, and Essex called Hobmadods. Um, and we do a lot of their uh, a lot of their pulses. So English-grown chickpeas. We've got an amazing um, amazing hummus. It's a vegetarian restaurant. Hummus is almost a cliche, but that's one of the reasons that we that we want to put it on. <laughs> um, you're in our house now. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> we'll show you how it's done. Well, do you we'll know what? That is a really good question, right? And you've already so we're talking about you know I I, I eat meat and and uh, you know eat vegetable everything you know um a lot of the chefs that i will talk to will talk you know how important it is about the, the welfare of the animal and the, we talk about you know or free range and all these things that we talk about uh, and and the, the farms and all this how important is the supplier because obviously i know you've just said you know you kind of just said you know a carrot is a carrot but is it still important that what was his name nigel or kevin was it graham thank you graham how important is it that great you know that graham's grown that carrot on his farm using the right methods because obviously again you with you know gareth's episodes on sustainability so we won't step on his toes too much but mm. it is still important i guess for a restaurant like yours that it's come from the right farms the right farmers etc yeah this is this is a balance that we that we have to that we have to um that we have to make um uh, i mean we're not as i say we're not um we're not totally dogmatic about it in, in particularly in the summer, um, we have some incredible suppliers uh, who do weekly runs to Italy, France, Spain, um, and if the best produce is coming out of those countries, then then of course we won't we won't discount it just because sure. 
just because it's not come from from the UK, um, it would be ridiculous to discount something from France, um, which is, as the crow flies, not that far away, but also sure, to say sure, sure. that it's okay to have something from northern Scotland. So um, we're not being little Englanders about it. Um, having said that, if there are local suppliers, and there are local suppliers who are doing truly amazing, amazing things, then it makes our job in the kitchen a lot easier. Um, so Flourish is a really good example. Hobmadods are a really good example. We have a, sure. a local uh, uh, eggs come from a local supplier, um, but we're not. It's hard to say. I, of course, I'm passionate about it, but I'm also pragmatic about it. I'm sure. realistic about it, um, and uh, it's not something that I, I, I won't. I won't die on a hill saying that everything has to come from within a, a 50 mile radius of the restaurant. Um, as long as it tastes great and as long as we can make it delicious um, and as long as it's grown in, in, a, in a sustainable fashion um, and, and sustainability, I know, you, I, know, I know you said you're touching on this next week. It's a really complicated topic. Um, it's, it's, it's something that we all have to think about, but it's not something that we can all expect to understand having read two articles in the guardian about it, because it's, sure. it, it, it goes far, far, more, far deeper than that. And, and, um, food miles are, you know, the people are saying now that food miles are a bit of a misnomer and you can have sustainably farmed produce coming from the other side of the world because transport costs and transport now is so efficient that mm, actually mm. an awful lot of the carbon footprint of something that you're cooking happens in your own kitchen. So right, okay. it's, it's, it's an incredibly complex topic and, and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and we're not, we're not going to solve it over, over hey, at all. Why do you think we've got a whole episode on it? You know, I'm on the, I'm yeah, on the button. Everyone will be an expert to, once they've listened to that. I, 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 really, I can't wait to hear what, um, hear what he's got to say about it because it is, it is it is a very yeah. very complicated topic, sure. and you know, weighing up there's there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of seed capital and venture capital that's going into this. So one of the things that we're asking uh, everybody to do then is back in the old past podcast days we used to talk a lot about dishes and the food and the food that defined you. And I was really interested to pick a couple of dishes that you either have on the menu now or you've had on the menu you know to date that really summarize your kind of thoughts towards plant-based cooking and almost i suppose like you say the things that you've learned the tips that you've gained along the way that it's really gone into into that dish and really made that dish extra special and hopefully really break it down and, and tell me you know why mm -hmm. you've done that to that dish um so you know floor's yours let's let's learn from your food so I think that the first one I want to talk about is the carrot dish that we've got on the menu at the moment. Um, and I, there's probably, everyone's had a version of a carrot tartare. Um, and there was a famous um, famous version of, a, of that 11 Madison Park a few years ago. Um, and they sort of grand this carrot table side and you could choose all your condiments to go with it. Um, but again, that relied on having a really, uh, just a really good carrot, right? It was, uh, it was, it was delicious carrot. Um, and I had, I had a version of this dish when I ate at Davis and Brook, um, a couple of years ago. Um, and it was great. It was, it was delicious. It was a very good carrot. It was a raw carrot that had been grated and mixed with some nice seasonings. Um, and for me, that wasn't, that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough of a, of a process to go through to get the best out of this produce. 
so we were we, we've been playing around for for a while there's um there's a there's a dish in uh that i think the second noma book which is sort of his catalog of um of, of Rene Redzepi's works in progress, when he just sort of throws a load of ideas at the plate and and sees what sees what sees what sticks and what happens, and and we'd done it before at the hole in the wall as a garnish. We were doing these little these little carrot um, carrot raisins, I think we called them. So it's carrots that have been that have been cooked and then dehydrated and then rehydrated in in carrot juice. So again, we're removing the water and we're replacing it with carrot juice. Okay, that's really cool. Um, and um, I did to see what would happen if we took this process a little bit further. So we start with like some really nice locally grown carrots. Um, and then we go through a three-day process. And what we get is this incredibly intensely flavored, um, very surprising, um, almost playful version of this carrot tartare, which pings a lot of other um a lot of other flavor points and ideas um, in the mind of the in the mind of the diner, which I'll come on to a little bit later. So the process process is take carrots, um, peel them, and, and we do a lot of we do a lot of vegetable cookery to eighty eight degrees, um, which is you know it's no different to cooking a, a steak medium rare to fifty two or cooking a piece of salmon to. 45 or 46 degrees um and 88 is the temperature at which starch begins to gelatinize which is the point at which a vegetable structure starts to break down and begins to transform from raw into something that has a texture and a flavor of something that's actually cooked so 88 is a magic number um, that we work with so we cook these carrots to 88 degrees um after they've been cooked and they begin to soften i mean they are you know a carrot is is perfectly cooked and it has it's, it's juicy, but it still has some resistance and some texture. So that's what we're looking for at that point. And yeah, we could put that on the plate. And we did a carrot dish over the summer where it was a carrot on a plate, and it was a carrot reduction over the top, and there was a bit of um, texture from a potato element to it. And it was lovely. It was delicious. It was very, very stripped back. And we could do that because we had great carrots. Anyway, um, after it's been cooked, we wanted to see what would happen if we dehydrated and then rehydrated it. So they get dehydrated about 75 degrees for six, seven hours. And by that point, they've begun to transform into something that's a little bit more like vegetable jerky. So they have a little bit more uh, resistance. Um, they're a little bit chewier and they have, they, they have a texture that is more reminiscent of raw meat. Um, we've removed as much water as we dare. Um, so we're, the yield is way down. So we begin with about 20 kilos of carrots and then we end up with about five kilos of probably less than five kilos of finished products. It's an incredibly, it's a labor intensive process, but this is what happens when you remove water from something, right? You end up with much less mass. Um, whilst the carrots are dehydrating, we reduce carrot juice, um, we we don't make carrot juice in house. We think it's much more efficient to buy carrot juice. So we begin with about six liters and we reduce that down to about half a liter. So again, we're, we're, we're intensifying flavour by reduction. Mm. Um, once the carrot has been dehydrated, we then add it back into the reduction of carrot juice, and then that sort of slightly rehydrates for 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 about twenty four hours or so. So by this point, we have got something that resembles raw meat, which then makes sense to turn into a tartare. 
So it goes through a meat grinder, uh, and then it's smoked with. Uh, we're using apple wood at the moment. I think apple and carrot has a nice affinity. Um, so it's not. I mean, it's not a wild combination. I mean, it would work with oak wood or cherry wood, but we're using apple wood. Um, so this carrot mince then gets smoked. Um, oh, so you're mincing around. then smoking it. So we're mincing it then smoking it. Yeah. Wow! 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 Yeah, so we're really, really packing the, the sort of smokiness in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then when you've got to when you've got to this point, we were you can take it in several different directions. So we were playing around with um, with a with a version in the summer when it was really, really nice and hot with uh, very fresh, vibrant Thai flavors. So we were adding mm. uh, ginger and lemongrass and galangal, yes, a bit of yes. chili to it um now that we're heading into autumn winter we've we've taken a much more scandinavian uh direction um i've, I've got scandinavian background anyway my mum's swedish um so i sort of grew up eating dill and nice. um, yes. and, 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 yep. and salmon and gravlax and things like that so that's where we're that's where we've taken it so once the carrot has been cooked and dehydrated and rehydrated and minced and smoked um it then uh, we're seasoning it up this, at the moment with horseradish, fresh horseradish root, oh, um, yes, dill, yes, capers, yes. shallots. Um, it needs a bit of texture, so we add some puffed rice, puffed wild rice, just gives it a bit of crunch. Um, and one thing that's one thing that's missing a lot in plant-based cookery is fat, um, and those natural fats that exist in in uh, Meat and seafood just—they're just not present in 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 plants. Um, so we're adding cold pressed English rapeseed oil just to give it some richness, um, but also slow cooked egg yolk. So it's an egg yolk puree. Lovely, yeah. Um, so we're riffing on tartar, we're riffing on smoked yeah, salmon, we're yeah, riffing on all yeah. these all these ideas. Um, and there is, and we can do we do we do a vegan version. For, we do probably six or seven vegan menus a week, um, and we just replace the egg yolk with um, with a with an emulsion um flavored in whatever direction we want to take it uh, but the egg yolk really works the egg yolk gives it a richness and it makes it reminiscent of a tartar um and then we top it with this incredible seaweed caviar that um that we we get from a company in copenhagen um and i, I it's just it's one of the it's, it's pretty much the only product that we buy into the kitchen um but it's just it's it's, it's a phenomenal product it, it looks like caviar it behaves like caviar it does what caviar does it gives that sort of idea of um of, of richness and generosity um and it just works so well so we've, we've created what we think it sounds great i've not heard of it before either it sounds great it's, we think it's you know it's reminiscent of a, of a of a of a fish dish of a, of a cold fish starter um but it goes through this incredible process to to get there um if we had really good wild alaskan salmon on the menu then we could do it with really good wild alaskan salmon or some some amazing smoke sure, salmon producers sure. uh, uh locally um but the idea of being able to do it and being able to recreate something that is familiar in a way that's completely new um we think that's really cool and um it's a dish yeah. that, that I, I think it's yeah, i think it's going to stay on the menu for a very very long time um i'm super super proud of it and um yes. I, I still don't get tired of tasting it which is which still speaks for itself no i think you know that i, I yeah you're blowing my mind a little bit that's super cool <laughs> super impressive um like i say it's it's interesting to hear all the sort of yeah you know all the different 
the temperature thing is really actually what my biggest takeaway. That's that. How mm. did you how did you find that? What was is that just through research or? That was through research. Yeah, um, there's a very good sous vide book by Thomas Keller called Under Pressure. Uh, and there's a chapter on there on cooking vegetables um, sous vide. Um, wow. And yeah, eighty eighty eight seems to be seems to be the magic number. I and mean, it's great. All this information is out there. It's so easy yeah, to come yeah, by. Yeah, yeah. I've got um, copy of um, McGee, which has been super helpful. Um, yes. Some of the, I'm sure uh, Heston quotes that name, McGee. Yeah, McGee is is he's like the um, the, the godfather of uh, of of this more scientific, more um, sort of process-heavy, thought-driven, um, rigorous approach to cooking sure. in order to get the best out of the best out of the food. Modernist cuisine is another great resource for for things like that. Um, so yeah, that's that's a dish that we're, we're so, so the genesis of this was a was a was a garnish that was on a dish back in the day at the hole in the wall because of something that I'd read in a Rene Redzepi book, and then it's just gone through this sort of four year gestation period, um, and it hit the menu about six months ago, um, and it's 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 not left it's not left the menu. Um, <laughs> it's gone through a few little sort of flavour Listen, changes, yeah. but um, I, I, listening I to it, I can tell anywhere. why. Well, I hope not. I, I hope I love not. Because I should hope to try it at some point. Yeah, you've got to come down, Paul. You've oh, got I'd to... like. Well, you brought me down once before, and I'm sure you can do it. I'm sure you can do it again. Um, okay, so let's let's move away from your chosen topic a little bit. So every every chef we're talking about this, and it's it's a bit about the you know the reason why we come back really is 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 almost in response to the difficult times that you've already we've already alluded to. Um, we're asking every chef to talk a little bit about um, staffing. Right. And the mm-hmm. difficulties there, attracting staff, retaining staff, all those things. How do you feel about it? What's been your experience of it? Um, and what's, if anything, what's your takeaways? What's you, how have you tried to combat it? Obviously, you've already started to talk about your working hours and things like that, but you must be feeling those pressures as everybody else is. Um, you know, what's been your experience of it? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a bumpy ride. It's been a bumpy five years. Um, I think we can, I think we can trace these, we can trace these issues back to, um, to sort of big pivotal moments like Brexit, like COVID lockdown, um, and sort of top down governmental, um, decisions that have had an impact, um, or even sort of supranational decisions and, and, uh, occurrences, um, that have had an impact on direct impact on the hospitality, um, profession. Um, I think to some extent they exposed fault lines that were already in place within hospitality. Um, and I'm glad that that conversation is being had in the open, um, about what is and what isn't acceptable in terms of working hours and working practices and bullying and mental health and um, all the things that are being talked about much more openly with regards to hospitality and restaurant work and um, uh, and kitchen work in general. I don't think we can. I don't think we can. It's too easy just to blame Brexit and blame COVID for the problem that we're in, and no doubt they're contributory factors, but. I don't think as an industry we've we've helped ourselves over the last few years. Um, I really don't. Um, 
these are, these, I mean, these were fundamental. These were fundamental to to what we were trying to do with with Vandal and making sure that um, that the working practices we have in place are uh, fair and sustainable, and people are properly remunerated for for their efforts, and they're not worked or overworked, uh, and they're not underpaid. So we began like i said we we began with that premise we began with yeah. this idea of yeah yeah i was do you know what? i was exactly um, going to say that like it was from your origin you had that in mind and you you've experienced the other end so who better to know how mm. to stop that than you so so how do we how do we do it well we 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 work four services a week um and we have a very very small team um, so full time right now, there's only five of us. Um, and then we have three additional part-time front of house staff that come in for service. They work either two, three or four shifts a week. Um, everybody is paid at least the national living wage. Um, everybody gets an equal share of tips, um, and service charge. Um, we don't work Saturdays. This was a big one. This was a massive, massive change for us. Over the summer, we decided to change our working week from Wednesday to Saturday, um, which is what had been since since the day we opened. Um, and we're now Tuesday to Friday. So everybody gets a weekend off, which if you have another half who doesn't work in hospitality, is a massive bonus. Um, and be allowing people to, to live a more normal for want of a better word life while still working a job in hospitality i think is um i think is really progressive and we're trying There's to very 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 few people that do that shot on a saturday so, well, we did, yeah we, we, we crunch the numbers and, and we're we're fortunate enough to be full on a tuesday night and if you're full then it doesn't matter if you're full on a Tuesday night or or, or, or a Saturday night. It it, it doesn't. No, no, you're totally, full, you're totally. Full. Yeah, um, yeah. And there are there are operators who would look at our our business model and say, "Well, you're full four services a week. Why don't you open for another service a week? Why don't you?" But yeah. the second you start opening that door, um, is when the, that's when the problems start because you know all of a sudden you've got to hire more staff and then all of a sudden mm. you've got to make sure that you're full for that extra service in order to pay for that staff. So you've got to put on another service just to make sure you've got that wiggle room. So we've found, we've found an equilibrium um, and it's not, it's not for everybody, um, but it, it certainly works for us. And there's enough flexibility in our business model that means if we do need to plug a little hole, then we have the option of opening up another service a week and, if we do, it'll be a Saturday lunch rather than a Saturday night. So people still have their, 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 uh, as much of a weekend as, as is possible. As possible. Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 So, um, and we all sit down, we have, we have family meal. We take an hour for lunch. What I was going to ask is about the retention side, especially being such a small team, um, how, how important that is. And, um, like you say, uh, the things that you've got in place clearly like, there's so few restaurants that that offer it. Do you find that gives you an edge when it comes to retention? Yeah, I think it does. Um, uh, so, who have we got with us now? So, myself and Lawrence, um, who've obviously been there since the beginning. Um, our general manager has been with us since the start. Um, 
uh, our pastry chef has been with us for uh, almost three years. Um, and when we do lose people, it's because it's not because they it's not because they're pissed off with how, how the job's panning out or anything. It's because they want to do other projects, and they've you know either they've outgrown us or uh maybe they're heading off to university or they're moving you know it's very it's very very rare that somebody will, mm. will and you know there, there are people that don't fit in and and we know very quickly um um after a trial shift um that it's that it's not going to work out um so you know there's some people the ki- also equally the kitchen that we that we run isn't for everybody some people enjoy that cut and thrust and and that sort of slightly slower pace isn't for everybody. Um, I, I sometimes, speaking personally, I sometimes miss it. I sometimes miss um, the sort of slightly seat of your pants. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a feeling, isn't it? It is a feeling, and it is it is a buzz, and it's really hard to... It's really There's hard something to in that. almost going under, but not quite yeah. going under. Yeah. Being able to extract yourselves from the weeds is um, is, a, is a skill in itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I don't think we could fit. Like, I don't think we could fit two services into a day because our yeah you know, our prep day sometimes starts at eight and we'll be ready for service at six. But that's a full day's prep, and mm. and to yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to slap a four hour service, three or four hour service into the middle of that. Um, when there's only three of you in the in the in the kitchen, um, it's it's it, I, I just don't think it'd be possible. Um, sure. I mean, the things that we do take such a long time, um, and we haven't got a prep kitchen. We've got one open kitchen which has um, has a central island with some induction tops, and we have two rationale ovens, and that's it. That's you know that's that that's it. We haven't really got any fancy kit. It's just. We've got a pack of jet, but <laughs> hey, <laughs> whoa, hen's teeth. I've hen's teeth. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to get hold of some new beakers at the moment, and they're, they're just <laughs> not available. Um, so it's yeah. I mean, it's 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 an environment that works for us, and it's sure. a business model that works for us. And, and I'm incredibly proud of of what we've done. I'm incredibly proud of what we do, and I'm really excited to see what's what's going to happen over the next um, over the next few months and years. I mean, I'm 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 worried about what's going to happen to hospitality over the next mm. few months. I think winter's going to be, I think it's going to be absolutely brutal. Um, and I worry that a lot of people are going to cling on until until Christmas and get a festive season under their belts. But then, when those December bills hit in January, um, and the, the heating costs and the electric costs and the yeah, gas costs yeah. are taken into account, um, I, I, I really, really worry for for, for the industry as a whole. Um, particularly with 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 the COVID costs still hanging over people. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, these things haven't gone away, have they? No. I'm certainly going to. I'm certainly going to ask your, um, you know, your hopes and your ambitions for the future, just as we wrap up. But just, just before we do, you know, the reason why we're talking about benefits, the reason why we're talking about re- retention and and all these things, uh, is to do with the campaign that we're running to do with this series, um, which is all about encouraging businesses and hospitality businesses to offer these perks. And this is what we've partnered with, Hospitality Rewards. Um, Everybody knows that in hospitality, you kind of all look after each other and what have you. But they're really trying to kind of formalize that via their app. Um, And just a reminder to everyone listening that if you offer a perk, then you also get access to all the other perks for free for 12 months. So if anybody's interested, you can get in touch. But Alex, as you were 
have been and are continuing to be an incredible guest we would love to extend you and i'm sure the team the option to come on and see what perks we might have in your area i think that sounds great i'd love to yeah i can't wait to um i can't wait to show the guys thank you and hopefully yeah it's another thing that is a little you know perk for want of a better phrase for the team and another you know reason that's it's a great uh environment to work and like i say i I, the saturday thing is is uh is incredible i think there's very 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 few people doing that so what a place to work if that you offered me a saturday to record and i didn't think about it and now i now (laughs) i realize that makes perfect sense because you're lounging with your feet up um so as as we wrap up, as we come to the end, what um, I take here's an obvious question, just really quickly. I take it that's it now. Meat's not coming onto the menu. I take it that's the decision you've made. Or yeah, or I think I think it would be a huge. I think it'd be a huge surprise for 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 our diners if if we decided to suddenly put a venison dish uh, yeah. on the menu. I think we're too. I think we're too far down the rabbit hole now um and honestly i'm having too much fun with it and i I really feel like in the last six months we've had this um this great leap um in terms of in terms of um the ideas and the techniques that we've developed and yeah i'm I'm confident that there's there's very few restaurants doing what we're doing and, and it's really nice not to be beholden to to ideas and recipes that I've read about in other in other places or meals that I've had elsewhere and just really be plowing our own furrow um uh in terms of in terms of originality and and flavor and experience um, i'm super proud of I'm, I'm super proud of what we've achieved at the restaurant and i'm really excited as to the direction that it's going to take in the future if you're if you're a chef listening to this or in fact if you're a home cook but if you're a chef listening to this and you want to start to think about plant-based cooking or perhaps you know you do have meat on your menu but you want to come away from the mushroom risottos and the beetroot with goat's cheese and 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 all those things what would be your advice where do you start what what do you start to do where do you, you, know, where do you start so for home cooks, I, I have this conversation a lot. We do. We have two seats at the pass. We have a fully open kitchen, um, so I have a lot of interaction with with the diners, which is another. This is something else that I was absolutely essential in in in, uh, in designing the restaurant um, because I was sick of I was sick of working so hard in the kitchen and not seeing the reaction and not seeing the process of of uh, the whole hospitality experience. And it's really easy to disassociate yourself as a chef from from what's on the plate. And that it's actually going to be consumed by somebody in a dining room. So breaking down those barriers, I think, was really important. Also important for um, for, for for health and well-being as well. I think having a, an open kitchen is really good for um, for the environment um, and how the kitchen works. So this is a conversation that I have a lot at the, at the past, particularly with um, with with diners who say, you know, that they feel like they're stuck on, or they don't know how to begin cooking um, a more veg- vegetable focused um, uh, style of cooking. Um, my my first piece of advice is to look to cuisines that don't feature meat or fish anyway. So. Um, some of the some Italian food. You, know, you could you could eat incredibly well in Italy and not touch a piece of meat or fish. Uh, India, Sri Lanka, um, parts of the parts yes. of the Levant, India, um, India for me, big the, time. The, 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 the Middle East. Um, uh, 
and you can have you could you could eat for a year and not have the same meal twice and also not mm-hmm. eat meat or fish uh, my in, my in favorite like my favorite leeds curry houses are both 100 percent vegetarian mostly vegan um yeah. and i was reeling off like my favorite curries the other day to someone and afterwards they said oh are you vegetarian and i said no why he said oh just because every <laughs> single dish you name yeah. was it. I was like, oh that's just because i'm sat in my head yeah. eating uh, you know bundobust and, and all these places so no sorry yeah. i'm with you there carry on but, but, but i think I, how cool is that that you can that you can have such a varied food experience without having to um even consider like it just didn't it just didn't cross your mind and that's 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 no 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 it didn't cross my mind at all that's the experience that i think we're trying to to create and that's what i know i've done my job properly is when somebody like i said earlier when somebody gets to the end of their meal and they say oh my god i didn't even even realize um if in terms of in terms of chefs wanting to sort of um shift the focus a little bit to to more plant um plant-based cooking um i think there's a lot of there's a lot of shifting of mindset to be done um because it is very very easy to get hung up on having a hero ingredient and allowing it to almost do some of the work for you that's not i'm not denigrating what you know what chefs are doing at the moment um and and i've been there and it's not easy to perfectly cook a piece of turbot or a lamb rump or um or a duck breast every single time and that's not to say that they can't be fully delicious and they shouldn't form part of a of a cohesive dining experience i'm not vegetarian i still eat meat and fish and, and i still cook it at home and i still eat it when i go out um i don't eat anywhere near as much as i used to that's certain um but i think there's this idea that you can you sort of open up this completely almost brand new um it's like opening a secret door in the back of the in the back of the fridge or the back of the cupboard and being able to see these incredible um incredible ingredients and knowing that there are hundreds of ways to cook them Right, there's one way to cook a really good piece of turbot, and that is cook it perfectly, right? Or maybe you can cook it on the bone, maybe you can poach it. Okay, it's three ways to cook a piece of turbot. Um, maybe you can roast it whole. Um, but you take something, so it takes something like a carrot. I know we've talked about carrots a lot because that's something hey, everyone's very, very yeah. familiar with. Yeah. Um, Your but, mate's getting a shout like, out constantly. He's the, rubbing the, his hands the, the, together. Like the range you've got from there, from, 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 raw to semi-raw to cured to dehydrated and rehydrated to pureed to soup to you know like nobody has yet invented the best way to cook carrot because it's yeah, not sure. it's not out there and i just love that i love the uh, i love the originality of it i love the flexibility of it um I love the challenge of it more than anything yeah. else because, like, she just love to be challenged, right? This is something. Well, that do you, we, that do we you know? Like. You said before about the tie with the carrot. My uni trying to save money stock soup was I used to do like a Thai green carrot soup. Yeah. Delicious. So, like you say, yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Like, so you can just re, you know, go to the wheel, reinvent. You know, yeah, I like it. I really. I'm but with imagine, you. like. If, if you can think about what you how wide-eyed you are as a young chef first going into the kitchen and all these new ideas and ingredients and techniques like i had that again for the second time yeah, in my career yeah 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 
Um, so I had it when I first opened, also when I first started cooking. I had it again when I first opened the hole in the wall. And then I thought that sort of that wide-eyed experience, I thought it was over. And then I had it again, and I'm still yeah. having it because yeah. – there's the, the this is this is sort of an infinite little tunnel that I can travel down and it's it's incredibly exciting and I love I love what we're doing at the moment and um and fingers crossed you know the, the people continue to come through the door and people continue to to eat with us yeah so what's next last question what's what's next what what would you what's next for you what do you want to achieve what's the future look like for you <laughs> we've sort of it's been a bit of an arrested development for us really we opened we've been open a year to the day when we had to close because of lockdown um and then we had 15 months of uh doing takeout food um and then we reopened um august of 2021 so we, we sort of missed almost 18 months of of progress um so i'm really excited to see where where we can take things over the next uh, over the next few months, um, I don't spend too much time thinking about thinking about planning for for the future. I have no I have no interest in in expanding the restaurant. I have no interest in opening anywhere else. Um, I'm just sort of I feel like I feel like we're just getting started with with with, with what we're doing at Vandalisle. Um So that's that that's it. Keep doing keep doing cool stuff and sure and. Um, uh, I'm really. I look back on the menus we had when we first opened, and I look back on the menus that we had when we first reopened, and I look at the menu that we're rocking now, and to see the level of progress is is is, is one of the most exciting things. Just to see how far sure. how far we've come in that time, um, and who knows where we're going to be in six twelve months time. That's that's what that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me. Who going do back you into who do you look day. to in the UK? Who else? Who else do you look to? Who's who's doing plant-based right who who do you kind of look at i i haven't got the chance to eat out much recently and and i'm not i'm not too hot on what's going on in 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 the uk restaurant scene at the moment um uh there's a number of places that i'd love to eat at that i haven't eaten at um some like classic big hitters that i'd really like to go to i've never been to i've never been to the ritz and and by all accounts john williams is just cooking the best food of his career at the moment um i uh i'd like to eat at aulis um Mm, experimental kitchen before the year's out um my favorite restaurant in the country remains the ledbury um and i was so so recently didn't you yeah you went recently um, earlier this year and and had again one of the best meals of my entire life i think uh i think brett epitomizes what a chef can achieve when they stay in the kitchen um, <laughs> and, uh, and and knowing and and you know i was i was almost in tears when i heard that they closed and they were thinking that they might not reopen um but to to to, to see what they're doing at the moment is just it's phenomenal i can't i can't wait to go back i'd love to go more often um but it's um you know getting the getting the time off isn't always sure easy yeah nice. <laughs> i was gonna say you've got saturday off what's your excuse the dog <laughs> right well you know for me for me then i'll give you some tips friends of the podcast been on before kirk howarth plates doing the, the yeah actually yeah i've eaten the focus food phenomenal um, it's really really great and uh and friend of the show based in in manchester eddie shepherd the walled garden um he's he's yeah. doing some 
some I've really amazing things um, really cool with, stuff. with plant-based. Yeah. So yeah, there's some shout outs as well for, for other people, but you know what, after that and yourself, I'd probably have to do my research as well. But when you come to Leeds, we'll take you to Bundobust. If you've heard of this phenomenon that is Bundobust, yeah. this place, the veggie Indian food, all veggie meals, yeah. like mostly vegan. It blows my mind every time I go. And the best order is the order that I always do, which is the one of everything. <laughs> I, I mean, what, how liberating is it to go into a yeah. restaurant and say, "Yeah, just give me the give me the whole menu." I, yeah. I, one of one of the most inspirational meals that myself and Lawrence, my business partner, had actually was at P Franco um, before we opened before we opened the restaurant, and just to see what what it was possible to do with such limited resources um, mm. and just to be, again, to be able to say, yeah, just give me everything. I'll take the, I'll yeah, take, yeah, I'll yeah, take yeah. the Well, I don't know how often you find yourself up in Yorkshire, but bring an appetite and uh, we'll do the one of everything at Bundabust. You're on. I can't All right, wait. buddy. Well, thank you so much for hosting your episode on uh, on plant based cookery. I've certainly learned Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Um, and yeah, no way. You've somebody you know. I've no, like say followed your career for since whenever we met at, at the at the hole of the wall. So I've clearly followed your career since MasterChef. And uh, like I say, just really interested to hear what an incredible journey. You know. Um, and you know, I, I don't know. Part of me thinks that maybe in a couple of years you'll have this new epiphany and you'll just be doing something completely different i think you're definitely a well, learner yeah, aren't you nice. and you're a you're a thinker and i like that about you yeah I, i'm i'm sort of fully committed to to sort of lifelong learning and knowing that 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 um that you'll never know everything but the pursuit of that knowledge is what drives me forward and um i think that's what keeps things super exciting and um like i said that's what keeps me heading back into the kitchen every yeah. day well and your beard's nice and close today i promised to bring up the beard that beard you, you that beard you had on master chef lockdown, yeah, i needed i just wanted to be in that beard that beard was as big as that kitchen it was very uh, cozy was, yeah it was <laughs> Ah, you, you wore it well. You wore it very well. Do you, do you mind saying, I've always thought you're a very handsome man, even from your master oh, days, you. and you wore that beard well, but a nice close beard suits you too. <laughs> thank you so much. Paul, thank you so what much. What you've hosted. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Take care. And so we have an end of another episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you to our guest for joining us. And of course, thanks to our partners. Businesses such as Le Manoir, Farncom Estates, Beaverbrooks, Rockcliffe Hall and Swinton Park are utilising hospitality reward to aid their recruitment and retention goals. You can request a demo today by going to www.hospitalityrewards.co.uk and if you would like to learn more about the sponsors, you can go to that same site and that will include the Perks campaign. You can also email hello at hospitalityrewards.co.uk right now. And we'll see you for another episode of the show.